Welcome to New Hope's Sermon of the Week. We truly hope you're blessed as you listen to this week's message. I want to introduce Dr. Harold Eberly. Um, how many were here last night and heard this? Yeah, oh, a lot. So, yeah, so this was good. You're in for a treat. Uh, it's hard to estimate the impact that Harold and Linda have had on the body of Christ, right, John? I mean, it's like, it's amazing. Um, I don't know if we have that picture, but last night we uh, showed a picture of Harold, his ministry to the Muslim nations. And, uh, you know, have you ever thought how you could have a million people attend one meeting? Well, they, they had a million people at one meeting, and this is who they're working with and partnering with over in uh, Pakistan, it was, right? So it's just amazing worldwide impact, but he's been a teacher in the body of Christ for, you know, 35 plus years. They've been married for 38 years. Uh, they've pastored, they've led leaders. He's written over 30 books on theology and just amazing topics that many of us have digested here for years. Uh, but he's also got an apostolic anointing to release things. So when you hear him praying and talking, he's got the authority to, to release and to cause shifts to happen. So I would just say, you know, open up your heart and be ready. You know, we're going we're gonna to be in for a real treat here. So Hallelujah. Dr. Harold Everly, Amen. come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah. I'm blessed. I am so honored to be able to address you on a day like this. It is a powerful day. You know, in addition to the sending, commissioning, and their hearts obviously are as parents of this place now leading up, um, but at the same time, they now have authority to kick butt. Yeah, it's true. There's something that goes with authority. Of course, we know their hearts of love. We know their hearts of shepherding. But at the same time, authority exists. Authority is real. And things in the realm of the spirit tremble when God has established new authority in the earth because things must align. And they are. And they will. Well, I'm going to share about apostolic ministry because I think it's inappropriate with what we're talking about, how an apostolic church is run in contrast to a traditional church I want to talk about that, but I always like to give a real quick report about the worldwide scene again. And there was a whiteboard that I was hoping could be brought out here, because I'm going to draw a little picture. But as has been spoken, there's huge revival going on. I'll give you an update concerning that. Uh, Again, the statistics around the world, right now in Africa, there's 20,000, more than 20,000 every day being born again. South America, more than 35,000 every day. China, more than 29,000 every day. All total in the world, every day there's more than 200,000 people born again. For every person born, there's four born again right now. There's a greater revival going on right now, and this is a historic point. Never in history has anything like this happened. And our part right now is focused on the Muslim world. There are more Muslims coming to Jesus right now than any time in history. And you can see, like, the photo on the screen. Uh, Linda's and I ministry, we refocused about five years ago from Africa toward the Middle East, and the key time, which we're so excited to be part of, because there's somewhere between half a million and a million Muslims per month receiving Jesus. Now, you don't hear that on the news. You'll hear about two terrorists instead of the million Muslims who just received Christ. Our leader who's on this photo, we have two leaders in Pakistan we work with, uh, Anwar here, runs the television station, and Linda and I have a program, daily program. Several million Muslims listen each day as we read through the New Testament. We read a paragraph and talk about it, read a paragraph and talk about it. And millions of Muslims across all the Middle East are, for, for the first time, hearing the Bible actually being read to them. And it's 
powerfully impacting. But there's a lot of leaders right now who are focusing on that part of the world because of the grace that's been giving. There was a call for prayer for the 1040 window for quite some years, and now the harvest is being reaped. When we look at, amen, it's absolutely incredible. When we look at what's going on worldwide, I never want you to lose that picture of the incredible move of God. Um, today, the largest in Christianity denomination is still Catholicism, about one billion people. Orthodox Christianity, which we don't have a lot of Orthodox churches, has about 800 million. That's the second largest denomination in the world. The third largest block of Christianity today is Christians who believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit. That includes all denominations that believe in healing, believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit. And the most accurate statistics we have are 660 million now. So that's the third just larger block of Christianity are those who believe, as we do, about God still working healings and miracles. And yet that is where the mass of revival is happening among that 660 million. So much so that the statistics are that we will be the second largest block of Christianity in the earth within two years. And then within eight years, we will be the largest block of Christianity in the earth within eight years. At the present rate that things are going on, you know, we are taking over. Jesus had said the kingdom of God's at hand 2,000 years ago. It's been growing as seeds in the earth ever since. And he has said at the time of his return, the biggest tree in the garden will be the kingdom of God. Even today, the kingdom of God's the biggest entity on earth. Out of 7 billion people... Over 2.5 billion claim to be Christian. It's more than one out of three humans on earth claim to be Christian. There is no country bigger than Christianity, no army, no organization, nothing bigger in the earth than Christianity, and there's nothing growing faster than Christianity right now in the face of the earth. So we get to partake of the Muslim awakening going on right now, and it's absolutely phenomenal, historic. I gave the example last night how just Anwar, the one leader we work with, has his four pastors standing in water every Saturday from sunup till sundown, four lines of Muslims being baptized till sunup till sundown. At the end of the day, the lines are miles long with Muslims, and we just have to tell them, come back next weekend. And it's been going on for several months. Again, you don't hear about that, but this is what's going on in the earth. Sometimes you're bringing all the bad information into your television, into your living room, and you're focusing on that, and they're specializing on the bad news, and God has a whole lot of good news. Since the day Jesus said it's finished, he has been king and Lord, and the kingdoms of this earth are becoming the kingdoms of our God. Amen. So I hope you never lose sight of that fact. Okay. Now, I'm talking about the apostolic church, huge shifts going on. Now, sometimes Christians are comfortable in their present organization, present structure of the church. They've been comfortable for years, and they wonder, well, why do we have to change? Well, Jesus said you can't pour new wine into an old wineskin. If you've been praying for revival, you've been praying for God to move, if you believe that you want America to be more Christian, and if you want any change, the wineskin you ought to be expecting, it's going to rip, it's going to change. Your prayers cannot get answered without ripping the wineskin. Jesus said it is impossible to put new wine into a present wineskin. It is impossible for you to change and for America to change without the church changing. The structure, the wineskin is the structure that is containing. So we as God's people, we can pray for revival and then hide out and hope nothing changes. Or you can pray for revival and believe it's going to happen and start changing with what's going to have to change to contain the outpouring of God's Spirit that we've been praying for. 
And so here we are in a place in our lives saying, okay, God, we are willing. We have been praying for this. What is necessary? I want to make a contrast between the old wineskin being the type of church most of us have been raised in versus the apostolic wineskin, which we are seeing appear all over now. I want to talk about the distinctions between that. Now, again, the change, you shouldn't be shaken by it, but even in history, there have been changes in the historic structure of the church. For the first 300 years of Christianity, there was even a change there. First 100 years, the apostles, they actually were heads of the church communities that were gathered around. But then as they began dying out, some bishops were appointed over local congregations. The title bishop started replacing the first church fathers. And then it wasn't until the year 325 that the bishops were first time in history called together. And at that point, the bishops were recognized as an entity. For the first 300 years, the church was organized differently. Bishops had oversights of different areas, but there was nothing coherent to hold them together. It wasn't until the year 325, church structure changed, and now there was a cohesive bond among the bishops. And then it was not until around the 4th century, the latter part of the 4th century, where the bishop in Rome started taking dominion and started insisting that he had a high title above the other bishops. And at the same time, Orthodox Christianity, the second largest denomination, began its separate entity, and they continued to grow. But that lasted here in the Roman part, the Western part of the world, until the Protestant Reformation. And around 1500, most of Europe divided up And each country had its own form of Christianity. Germany had Lutheranism. England had Anglicanism. The Dutch, they had the classical reform theology. Each country claimed a state religion. This has happened in our history. But it was not until Christianity then now comes into America and the founding of this country where this country decided not to have a state religion, but that allowed denominations to form. We look at our history and we say, God has changed our structure several times in history. Why would we be surprised that he might change our structure in our lifetime? Not only have we been praying, but it is in God's plan to keep things moving because he is a God who wants his people to transform from glory to glory. And if we are praying for the greatest revival the world's ever seen, we want a wineskin that can contain that. Now, I know that this particular family, the body that's been raised here, you have been exposed to apostolic ministry for years. Your founding fathers were introducing apostolic ministry. That's very unusual to the church in America. That was very pioneering years ago. That was very at the forefront. It's only now that now churches are finally waking up and saying, let's all realize this is of God and let's now start embracing this. A huge awakening going on. So I know that you are pioneers of this, but now what you are experiencing is being shared by a lot of churches all over the world. When I now make a comparison between the traditional church, I have to have a whiteboard to think out loud. I'm going to draw over here a traditional church building, okay? You've got your white building with a cross on top. I'm going to represent as that as a traditional church in a denomination, and a lot of us have been exposed. Probably most of you, you've also attended other churches. In fact, You know, we attend a denominational church, a church in a denomination, and yet it has changed over to apostolic. That this transition that we talk, it can happen in independent church, it can happen within denominational churches that will allow it, and yet still we are seeing this transition is necessary to embrace what God's doing. So here I'm drawing the traditional church that we would see. 
And we would see the traditional church under denomination. This pattern has been here in America since the founding of this country. Actually, the countries of Europe did not have denominations until recently. There was still a stronghold for state religions. And those state religions still have the dominant influence in most countries of Europe. Although there's been a scattering, they do not understand the denominations to the same level that you and I do. Because our country was the place where it scattered and broke into denominations and then spread across the earth from here. Well, here in our denominational structure, vast majority of traditional churches are under a denomination. That has been the pattern. And within that structure, there's a pastor, one leader at the head. Most Christians in America... That's what they're familiar with. That's what they think about when they church. They think about the building on the corner, a pastor who runs that place. And if they attend that church, the first thing they want to know is who's the pastor of this congregation. They want to see the person minister up front. They think that's the one who's got the authority of the local church. And he gets his authority from the denomination. Well, actually, a local pastor gets his authority from three different places in that old setting. Number one, from the denomination... Number two, from his religious training. Does he have any degrees? And number three, from his own personal leadership qualities. That most people will end up following that pastor because the domination has put their stamp of approval. Number two, he's charismatic. He's got some leadership abilities. And then number three, he ought to know something. And it's usually because he went to the denomination's Bible college. When he was young, he was sent off to the Bible college. And then the denomination sent him to work in a church. That's the system that most of us have been raised in. But now when we're talking about an apostolic church, there's huge changes that must come from this structure into what I want to draw over here is the apostolic. And I would look at Ezekiel 37 as my pattern. There in verse 1 to 10, it talks about dry bones coming together. And in that passage, the prophet is told to speak to the bones, and the bones represent God's people. And when he speaks to the bones... Flesh comes on the bones, then the bones assemble in their proper place. I would like to consider that image as an image of a transition. When God's spirit comes, he comes on a group of people and they're going to change and they're going to change in their structure because that's what we see happening there in Ezekiel. The bones are scattered across the fields. The bones represent God's people. There's not a lot of life there. In the life of many churches... You can experience that. You are just a collection of bones. You're going to church. You're attending. But many churches will go through a transition sometime in their lifetime when it seems the Spirit of God comes on them and He's ready to change them. Life comes on them. Flesh comes on the bones. The first result you see when God's moving among a people is they feel like God is close. Life is here. Their prayers are being answered. And the presence of God is in the worship. You can come in the mist, and next, that presence begins to cause people to love each other. That's the manifestation of God, and the manifestation that He's changing a group of people. So as I draw an arrow as a transition to represent, if God were to come on a traditional gathering of dry bones, what would they become like? What would they turn into? And let's draw here the ideal. Now, nobody's living up to the ideal, but if God were to make the church, what would it look like? And I would, first of all, point to 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where it says God has first appointed apostles, then prophets, then teachers. And in chapter 12 there, he's actually allowing and instructing us how the church ought to be organized if it really was organized according to God's design. 
that it would not be the pastor at the head, but there would be an apostolic leader at the head. Then there would be a prophetic voice. Then there would be teachers, administrators, helps, and on down the path. So if we are really going to think that God's going to organize the church the way he wanted it, wouldn't he organize it the way he wrote in the Bible? Pretty much. Yeah, you would think so. I want to propose to you that if God's moving in power and the Spirit's going to come upon a group of people, the first thing will be life, the presence of God, love, that which we believe is in the nature of God. But number two, and this is what we often miss, the bones will assemble. The words assemble are really important. It's one thing to have a gathering of bones. It's another thing for the bones to assemble. That song raised up in the south years ago about the hip bone connected to the leg bone, leg bone connected. That comes from Ezekiel 37 when the bones were scattered, but then the breath of God comes on the bones and the bones start aligning. And the hip bone connects to the leg bone, leg bone connects it. It makes the whole body come together. And Ezekiel 37 verse 10 describes that then it stood as one man. The bones assembled together and they were linked together. So now it was visible not as a scattered group of people, but now it is assembled. One of the transitions we see when God is choosing a group of people to change them from a gathering into an assembly is people start wondering, what are my gifts? Where do I fit? People are no longer content just to sit in the pew and do nothing. Everybody starts wondering, who am I? What am I I created to do? And God starts moving them around and linking them with other people because he's changing them from a gathering into an assembly. One of the most helpful illustrations, when, when our three children were home, our youngest boy used to buy model airplanes in a box. And it was just a box of bones. A box of plastic pieces. Well, when he assembled it, he would glue the wings in the right place, the propeller in the right place, the cockpit in the right place, and then it would be assembled so it could fly. When God is assembling a group of people, he's assembling it for a purpose because he has a destiny. He is taking a gathering of Christians and assembling them together because he has a bigger purpose in mind. It's one thing to have a gathering of Christians. It's another to have an assembly. You know, so we've been, you know, for over 31 years traveling churches, several every week. It's very easy to come into a church and quickly decide, is this a gathering of Christians or is it an assembly? Because in the lifetime of a church, God may visit a church. Those people are hungry. God responds to their prayers and he starts fitly framing them together. People start locking arms. Your gifts are complementary to the gifts of the people around you. God starts moving people into a different arrangement and these arrangements that he knows that is necessary to accomplish what he's about to do. God has a calling for a region and he's going to structure a group of people who can fulfill that calling. Whenever we pray and we say, God, do something mighty in the earth, the first thing we ought to look for is for our wineskin to change and for new leaders to arise. That's normally how God answers prayers that will change a region. You say, okay, God, here's something that's going on around us. This is the answer to our prayers. We are seeing them right now around us. People are being locked in arms. Now, it's my personal belief that God was going to be doing this worldwide. 
And the closer we get to the return of Jesus, you will be networking, joined arm in arm with people across denominational walls, across country barriers, that God is going to cross every barrier that we've had in the natural, gender and age, that he will be linking people, and you will be linked with people you never thought you'd be linked to before. God is structuring his church around the world in a new pattern. But already there are churches that are sensing it in their presence. They're saying God's doing that among us now. Many Christians are yet still bewildered about what's going on. But what is happening among you is happening by the Spirit of God in the earth. And when you move with it, you start finding there's a grace there. And you can feel a grace ahead of you that if we keep walking in this direction, God will be causing his signs and wonders to accompany that which we are stepping out to do. You walk in his path. Now, in this transition, the breath of God comes. The people become assembled. The individuals understand their gifts and their anointings. But he also anoints different individuals and causes their anointings to change. When we talk about the pastoral anointing, we're talking about a heart. The key way to identify the pastoral gift is a heart for shepherding people. A shepherd loves people. A shepherd wants the people to be healthy, wants them to get along, wants them to be prosperous, to be happy in their families, wants their kids to grow up. That's a shepherd's heart. We don't identify a shepherd's heart by did they get a degree at Bible college. You identify a shepherd by what's in the heart. Now, it was 38 years ago when we started pastoring in our church. Well, I was sent by denomination. I had gone to their seminary, but I did not get the gift of a pastor at seminary. I was put in the position of a pastor, and I had a gift to teach. I love teaching, but I honestly, to tell you the truth, did not have a heart as a pastor. I would have just been happy teaching some other church. But after three months there at that church, one of the ladies in the congregation called me on the phone, and she was crying because her husband walked out. Now, I didn't know what to tell her. I didn't know what to teach her. When I, I've said a prayer for her on the phone, but then after I hung up, I went in the living room, and something came over me, and I started crying for his marriage. Then I started crying for every marriage in my church. Then I started crying for everybody in the congregation. And I spent that evening crying out to God for the health of my church. My heart changed. I became a pastor that night. I didn't get the pastoral heart at seminary. No denomination could give it to me. I received it from Jesus while I was crying in the living room of my home after three months of people already calling me pastor. My heart changed. That's the gift of pastor. It's a heart that says, no, I want to give my life to these people. The moment that heart changed, not only did I change, but the people began to look at me differently. That Sunday I came to church and I can tell they trusted me more. There was something in them that when they looked to me, they could feel my love for them and they responded. A dynamic change between me and them that very week. Something changes when God gives you a change in your heart. I'll give you one more example from my personal life. I wanted a gift to be able to evangelize. That's another gift of God. But during my first three years of pastoring, I had no gift of evangelist. An evangelist has the ability to cause people to make a decision to come forward altar calls and get saved. For three years as a pastor, I'd have call forwards and nobody would come forward. <laughs> Do you know how embarrassing that is? I dreaded the end of every church service. Oh God, I can't do call forwards. Nobody would come. Three years as a pastor. Well, I finally 
had an idea. Reinhard Bonnke was ministering in Seattle, which is about 10 hours from where we were pastoring. Reinhard Bonnke, now he's a guy that can have a call forward. I don't know if you've ever seen him, his crowds of 100,000, 200,000. I mean, it's just incredible. And I'd watch the videos and I'd say, God, I want his anointing. God, I want his anointing. So I drove the 10 hours out there and I knew he was ministering this big church with about 5,000 people. And I pushed to get in the front seat. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get Reinhard to spit on me. I'm going to get him somehow. I want what he's got. And so there we were, four meetings. Okay, and I'm sitting in the front every meeting. And I'm just focused. God, I want his anointing. I want his anointing. I hate having call forwards and nobody ever responding. God, please let me help me. Well, it was on the fourth meeting. He was walking right back and forth. And all of a sudden, he stopped. And he looked up to heaven and said, One day, I decided everybody in my meeting will be saved. I was right in front of me. He said it. And I heard nothing else the rest of the meeting. One day, I decided everybody in my meeting will be saved. That was a Saturday morning. I drove all the way home the rest of the day. Ten-hour drive, hearing Reinhardt's words. One day, I decided everybody in my meeting will be saved. Next day was Sunday. I'm doing my usual in church. I teach. I love the people. The end of the church service comes, and the first thing, I should have an altar call. Fear hit me. Nobody will come forward. Then I shook it off, and I said, one day I decided, everybody, I mean, I said, lock the doors. Nobody leaves today. Today, you will come out of your chairs. You will come forward and receive the living God. Today is the day. Now, come forward. The entire church came forward. Every single person in the building, mothers ran in the nursery, got their kids. The entire place was filled. Most of them had been saved for years, but they still came forward. Who? I got a heart. I caught something new. I got a new authority. I got a new anointing. And ever since that day, it works whatever country I'm in. Because a day came when Jesus changed my heart. I saw the glimpse of his heart. And I knew that's the heart I need to get the results that he has. When we see God moving now in an assembly of people, he's choosing an area and says, I have a purpose in this region. I want to raise up a people who fulfill that purpose through whom I can do my will. He often changes the pastoral anointing. He puts somebody in, in a position with an apostolic anointing. And when we talk about the apostolic heart, we're contrasting that now with the pastoral heart. Pastoral heart loves people, wants everybody to be good. But the apostolic heart, the very word apostle means a sent one. Sent from God, commissioned from God, means a sent one. But the same spirit of sending for which they were being raised up, they want to send everyone else. They have a heart to raise up people all the way from salvation to full-time ministry. They feel the personal responsibility to say, we have been sent by God to fulfill the great commission. Now, that's not a pastor's minister. That's not his vision. A pastor's vision is to get the flock healthy and strong. An apostle's vision is, no, we're here to fulfill the Great Commission. We're here to make up, raise up disciples and send them to all nations. We are here to raise up a mighty group of people in the earth to change the earth. That's a different vision. That's a big vision. An apostolic vision is sent by Jesus Christ. And the very words of Jesus to the apostle is, go and make disciples of all nations. There's something huge in the heart of an apostolic person. But that changes then the nature of not only the person, but the ministry. 
What flows in a pastor church, when you come to a pastor church, you walk in the door and you can feel, I can get comfortable in this place. But you come into an apostolic church, the spirit in the air is different. You can feel, if I come and join this place, I will be challenged. I will be raised up. I'm going to have to advance in my life. You can sense it as soon as you walk in the door. You can see I can grow. And in fact, I can accomplish something significant. And it's not just in ministry, but it's the spirit that will cause you to do great things in business, do great things in education, do great things in real estate and finances. And whatever area you're in, there's a spirit in the air, a spirit of faith to say, we can do bigger things. We are here in the earth to change the earth. It's a spirit that we are looking for. And we call it adjective. I use it as an apostolic spirit. A ministry that is apostolic leader begins to have an apostolic spirit. And people start feeling that in the air. And no longer can you just be comfortable sitting. But now a new leader comes along. And some people don't like the change. They look at the pastoral anointing. They remember how nice it was. And they think, oh, it was so nice having a pastor. And now all of a sudden, somebody's telling them what to do. Somebody's telling them they got to change. Somebody's telling them they got to rise up. And a lot of people don't want that. They've been comfortable for years. Under the apostolic leader, there forms an apostolic team. And with that apostolic team, they work together to cause that vision that God is giving in the region to be fulfilled. Now, when we talk about the apostolic team, we see various individuals on that team. We see the prophetic role. We see the teaching role. We see administrative and pastoral roles. But when we talk about the pastoral role, indeed, we can have people on the apostolic team that are part of that, but the primary pastoral ministry should be done among the congregation where God doesn't have just one or two pastors, but literally the pastoral anointing is multiplied among the people and released. And now that pastoral heart to care for people, it comes to the children's ministry. It comes to counselors. It comes to life group leaders. It comes into people who just love everybody around them. And now God doesn't have just one pastor, but he has many pastors and pastorees, pastor lady likes, whatever you put pastor. How do you put that ending on there? (laughs) And God is releasing among the people because as long as you only have the old wineskin, where do you put 10, 20, 30 pastors under the old wineskin? You can't do it. So here God is shaking things around. Now, when we talk about the congregation down at this level, sometimes people get a little irritated because they're of the thinking that this whole thing should be tipped upside down. And indeed, there's fruit and real truth in seeing this thing upside down, wherein the apostolic team is below the foundation, building up and raising up the people. That's a good way to look at it. But at the same time, there's also truth looking at this way because there is an authority. One of the best things I think that would help us understand this is for the vast majority of the congregation to understand, yes, we recognize authority. But the leaders who are actually here, they ought to see this thing upside down. So if during the next few minutes while I teach this, if the leaders could stand on their head and look at this from upside down, (laughs) then I think we will have a better understanding of how the church should run. That indeed as a church, as a people, we recognize there's authority. What was said here by Chris earlier about John chapter 10 that says the shepherd is the door to the sheep. And two, it's a reality. Whoever God puts in charge, they are a door. In fact, when I come to a church, I must come through that door. 
I have discovered through my years of traveling that if I do not have the blessing of a senior leader, that my work among that congregation will end up stealing, killing, and destroying. I will end up teaching things that cause a division rather than things that are actually helping that ministry. But if indeed I find out who is God put as shepherds of that ministry and I come with their blessings, then that which I give is not stealing, destroying, it's building up. It comes with abundant life because Jesus will flow through the doors that he has established. So we do acknowledge an authority that exists as a people. And yet the very leaders themselves ought to consider themselves at the bottom, lifting themselves up because it's the heart of a servant that's going to make this thing work. And so the humility flips this thing upside down. And yet all of us recognize there is a true authority that happens. And when we bring our life and we try to bring into alignment that which we see, there comes an anointing and a unity. Now, when we talk about unity, I know your stomachs are growling. It won't go much further, okay? I know that the unity that forms among this, this apostolic church is very different than the unity that happens in the traditional church. In the traditional church, we talked about the authority The leader gets it from the denomination, from his Bible school training, and from his charisma. Over here, the authority does not come from a denomination. The authority comes, first of all, they've been commissioned from Jesus Christ. But number two, there comes into a dynamic called the corporate authority. That the authority of the people becomes united as one. And as all these people turn their hearts toward the direction that God is leading. They're adding their individual authority in order that there's a greater authority created corporately. That corporate authority is a tangible thing that you can see in different churches. When a church has changed from just the structure of authority on an individual to a corporate authority, God gives them authority in the region. Something changes. Where something in the region, principalities bow people start recognizing there's now a spirit that is changing the region. An assembled group of Christians has an authority to change the spirit of the region. They have authority to do everything that God has commissioned them in the Great Commission. They have authority to evangelize. They have authority to go into the streets. They have authority to plant churches. They have authority to send missionaries. The corporate authority is much more significant than that which comes from the old wineskin. That authority increases every time people join their hearts as one. You join your hearts as one, first of all, when the presence of God manifests. When we are worshiping at the start of service, we're all thinking of Jesus. We're worshiping him. As our hearts are pointed one, God's presence comes. 1 Corinthians 12 says, and we're all baptized in one spirit, in this one body by one spirit. And the more tangible the presence of God comes, the more we are being fitly framed together. Something is happening to us in the manifest presence of God, where God is molding us, and your gifts are rising up. And you are sharing the responsibility with people around you. You're being assembled. You're being molded. The stronger the presence of God. You can see this. If you've ever attended a church where God's presence never came, you will be not that bonded to those people. But if you attend a church where God's presence regularly comes, if you ever have to leave that congregation, you have to move away, it'll be like getting a piece of your heart ripped out. If you experience the presence of God with the people, you are joined in heart with those people. Something has happened to you where you have been bonded in heart with them. And if you ever have to leave, you will leave a part of your heart. Why? Because the tangible presence of God was making you one. It was causing you to be of one mind and one heart because God was melting you together with those people. 
The first thing, the most powerful thing to make this group of people one is the manifest presence of God. But then there's other things also. Whenever we orient our hearts and we join our hearts together, like every time there's an offering, everyone in this room, you're making a decision whether you're partnered with this church or not. When you, where your money goes, your heart goes. And if you say, no, I'm with this church, I put my money in this church, you have just associated your authority, your personal authority with this group, and you've made this group bigger. Every time this church goes through trials, somebody starts raising up accusations. Every one of you will make a decision, whether to listen to the accusations or whether to say, no, I'm here. God planted me here. I'll stay here. In that decision, you have decided to say, no, my heart is with them. You have just now made your authority to them and you've created a stronger authority here. That's why through persecutions and trials, you at the end of it will be a stronger body, a more unified body than before it. It doesn't matter what kind of difficulties you go through. Someone dies. New babies are born. Anything that takes our hearts and causes our hearts to become one, God uses to make us a people. Because God is not just up in heaven saying, oh, I want to save this individual and that individual. It's always been God's heart. I want a people. I want a people. God is not just us American identity where we think we are individuals by ourselves. God has a much bigger heart for a people. And you and I are created to have health in within a family unit and within a community. And at the end of your life, you will judge the quality of your life not based on how much money you've made or whether you were able to buy a boat and a nice home. You will judge the quality of your life by your family and by your community. And if you have been fulfilled in those areas, you will say, my life has been good. At the end of your life, if you have aligned yourself with what God is doing in the earth, you will find yourself able to use your gifts, your abilities. You'll be able to use that which God has profited within you to help what God's doing in the earth. And you will say, my life has been full. God is allowing a people. He's looking in the face of the earth for a people. He is now causing them to rise up. Finally, when we look at this being raised up, God created a people with his presence and uniting their hearts. Within the congregation, there will be pastors and people to oversee and love people. Some of them will identify it. Some of them will just do it because it's their heart and they can't stop doing it. And they will begin to love other people, whether it's in life groups, whether it's in the children's ministry, no matter where it is. Now, some of the pastoral ministry will simply have that heart. But even within this apostolic anointing will come upon them. And eventually the apostolic anointing will cause the very pastors to start raising up people. Not just trying to get people healthy, but even the life group leaders, the counselors, to try to raise people up. It changes the nature of every single leader throughout the ministry. And they now start raising up the people of the next generation. But now, when we look at this forming, that they're ministering to more and more people, the pastoral hearts the teaching gifts. There's two specific things that are key in this. I talked yesterday with the leaders about the prophetic role. Among the apostolic team, there's always a prophetic role. Now, many people are confused about their prophetic role. They think, well, the prophet of the church is someone who stands up front and prophesies. And that's not what I'm talking about. You see, every leader has someone so close to them that they bounce ideas off that person more than anyone else. I find that even in the old wineskin. Every church I went through throughout all these years, every pastor has some individual whom they always trust, their right-hand person. And I learned through the years that if I can come to a church, the senior pastor might like me, 
But if the number two person doesn't like me, I cannot influence that church. Because after I leave, the number two person will have coffee with the number one person. And the number two person will say, oh, Harold was okay, but I didn't like this. Harold did this, but that was really bad. Harold is, and they can undermine everything I tried to do to help that church. And I've learned through the years that unless they both receive my ministry, I cannot influence that church, and I have no reason to come back. But I have found that that prophetic role, and in the old wineskin, we normally don't call it a prophet. Sometimes it's an elder. Sometimes it's a, uh, someone of authority, maybe in the community, a business person, a wealthy person. Sometimes it's a retired pastor. Sometimes it's a worship leader. Sometimes it's the spouse of the senior leader. Because the spouse always has pillow power. Talking at the pillow. (laughs) Unless both of those individuals would accept my ministry, I can't influence them. Because there's such an incredible power in that authority right there. Well, the same thing in the new wineskin. God has said in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, He appointed first apostles, second prophets. There's something key in that relationship. But we have to identify the prophetic role. It's not someone who prophesies. The true prophet in the church is the one that the senior leader bounces ideas off of. Sometimes that person will never be out in the open. But that's the person whom God is using to help steer the person. The prophet is the one whom God is speaking to to help steer the thing. And I've seen through the years that that relationship actually establishes the stream that's flowing through this people. Too many times we'll have a new person attend the church. They'll come into the congregation and this new person appears Sunday, but they have a lot of authority in their life. Maybe they're retired. Maybe they were a mayor, governor. They just come to your church and everybody whispers, guess who was at church? And then that's great. We want people to come. But sometimes maybe the senior leader will start having coffee with this new individual. And it's fine having coffee once or twice, but now they start making it a habit. And pretty soon this leader begins to bounce ideas off this new person rather than the team that has paid the price to be here rather than the people who have been paying the price to give their lives to that ministry and what we see is as this leader begins to come to anoint and trust this second individual the old team members start feeling like they're losing touch with their leader's heart they start wondering how come he's making those decisions somehow we're losing touch and I call it spiritual adultery. That something's going to happen now in that dynamic. The same thing with my marriage with my wife. That if I were to allow another woman to start speaking in my life, somehow my wife would feel like she's losing touch with me. And somehow I would be violating my relationship. And indeed, there's time to bring new people on. But it has to be when the entire team feels a unity. That above all else in the apostolic church, loyalty is more important in growing and expanding than it is under the old wineskin. Under the old wineskin, you can contact the denomination and ask them if there's some new Bible college graduate whom you can hire as a youth minister, and it'll be fine. But if you try to do it in an apostolic church, it won't work because you are concerned about the hearts of the people and the prices that have been paid and the loyalty that's been for years. And your goal is to make disciples, that you are not under the old pattern. If a young person in the old wineskin wants to go in ministry, he talks to the pastor, the pastor sends him to Bible college, the denomination sends him to church, and right now, I heard the statistic was, over 87% of Bible college graduates who are put in ministry will minister less than one year and never minister again for the rest of their lives. That system isn't working. That system is killing our most zealous people. 
That God never intended us to send people off. His intentions were that we reproduce as a family. That we reproduce raising up our own people. And certainly our people can access things that are training outside. But most of the training must happen as a family reproduces. We raise up our own. And a time grows up where this individual who's been pastoring a group of people. And they have proven themselves. And maybe now they feel like they need to go into full-time ministry. How would it happen under the new wineskin? Well, they would ask the blessings of the apostolic team. And with the blessings of the apostolic team, we wouldn't splant them, we would plant them. In our home church, in our home church, we have about 1,500 people. Now, five times in our church, we've raised up people. We didn't splant them, we planned for it six months in advance. And we asked 200 people to leave our church every time. Every time we asked 200 people to leave, we raise up 50 to $200,000 and we send them across town. Now we have five dollar churches in our town because we raise up and we see somebody is ready. Now most of our pastors are staying within, but about once a year, or even twice, or sometimes it's been every other year, we'll see somebody who says, no, they have proven themselves. They can rise up and they can pastor their own people. And so we raise up and we ask at least 200 people to leave our church for a year, stick with the new pastor, tithe the new pastor, and now go plant on the other side of town. So we have five successful daughter churches in our town, but now we look at that and we say, what is the ongoing relationship now? Well, when we look at the relationship with the new plant, we hope they would always love the apostolic team. We would hope that their hearts would even be in submission. But there comes a point at which even that dynamic must change. Because God has appointed in the church first apostles. Not an apostle under an apostle under an apostle. He's not making a pyramid. God is reproducing this thing as a family. And if this pastor who's been sent out at some point rises up and becomes apostolic... No longer do we look and consider that this person is under our authority. Because God has not put an apostle under apostle. God has said, no, first are the apostles. And if this person begins to raise up leaders, begins to have an assembled body under him, we look eyeball to eyeball, but yet we hope there's honor. That honor is something that is a chosen submission. It's an honor thing. And yet we don't demand submission if indeed they've risen up and become apostolic. Now in my home church... I have no position over here. We have been there for a lot of years, but I'm never home. Our church is successful, but I'm only home about three Sundays a year. When I am there, they want me to preach. But where would I fit? I'm just a congregational member. I'm way down here. You see, in Africa, I'm considered apostolic. In Pakistan, I'm considered apostolic. At home, I'm considered a bald man. Just because I'm apostolic in one place doesn't make me apostolic in my home church. My people love me. You know, they'll take once a year offering to help our ministry. But you know what? I have no authority in my home church. This structure here has nothing to do with how sold out to God you are. It has to do with where God positioning you. You will have some people who are just among the congregation who are just as sold out or more sold out than everyone else. This structure has nothing to do with how committed it has to do with what is God assembling. And you're recognizing God has put this thing together. We're going to go with he's going with. At home, I'm not an apostle. I'm just a person with a bald head who gets to teach two or three times a year. And that's how it is. Some of you, you may be prophetic to in song. You may be apostolic to Honduras. You may be a teacher of some ministry out here. 
But that doesn't make you something here. It just makes you a brother and sister in the Lord. What we see here is who is God assigned to this location? Who is the prophet of this location? Who is apostolic? And finally, I make this point as we close. We're careful even about using the nouns apostle versus prophet. Because these things in our, in our culture are not familiar, and sometimes these terms are getting used in ugly ways. You know, I find I can teach this stuff in Africa, and they'll do it next week. I can teach in Pakistan, they'll do it. Of course, they don't use the word prophet over there. It's too dangerous. <laughs> but over here, we always encourage our people, well, you know, stick with terms like senior pastor or senior leader. But underneath, we all can identify there's an apostolic used as an adjective anointing. Because we're, we're on the down low. We realize this is what God is doing. We have a common understanding. And we do not want to offend a culture out there that's not ready for us. We want to sneak in and overtake them. <laughs> I believe this is what God's doing in the earth. And more specifically, I believe God has been doing this among you. And this church has been a pioneer in this for years. And yet the pioneers pay a high price. It doesn't seem the grace that is here today was here 30 years ago. There is a grace now where there are churches all over the world that are making a shift and believing that God is causing this in the earth. And I would encourage you and say, settle these issues in your own heart. If indeed God has called you to see what's going to be happening in the coming few years, that you say, I add my authority to this place. I jumped in. I, I purchased my way in. I'm sold. I jumped in. And you say, indeed, I see the hand of God on this thing, and I want to see. Don't miss the day of your visitation, for God is visiting you. There's something going on here of significance for the future. God is assembling a people, and when he assembles a people, there's a bigger purpose. And this purpose that's being fulfilled is going to impact nations and generations. And you will find some of the most mightiest women and men of God raised up in this location who are going to go out and change the earth. That's what God's doing in this place. Everybody say amen. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us, okay? You stand up. We get to eat. Glory to God. Bacon sounds good. New covenant meat sounds good. I say that on Jonathan's behalf. I praise God that he made it all clean. Hallelujah. You are an apostolic church. You're an apostolic people. It has been in your very DNA from the origin. But I believe the full manifestation of it is now. The full manifestation of that which a price was paid for years ago. It's time to manifest in the earth. I hope you can consider that and embrace it. Because huge things are being accomplished at this location. You need to fill this land. You need to fulfill that building next door. You need to enlarge from that building also. Don't think small. There's a generation. Your kids are at stake. And there's a whole other generation that will be raised up upon this location. We don't say these things lightly. In the name of Jesus, Father, we are here to partner with you. We hear your voice. We want to partner with what you're doing in the earth, O oh God. And the grace that you're giving to this location, we are a part of it, O oh God. Your people, Lord, to be a people It pleases you to have a people who love one another. It pleases you, O God. And nothing makes you happier than to see your people becoming one. Father, we invite your presence to increase during worship, during our times of pointing toward you from this day forward. 
We are asking for greater manifestations of your presence for people that come from far and wide to come here to sit in your presence and know you. We ask, O God, now to this manifest in the earth as a place of open heavens and for you to pour through in power. We proclaim this in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody say amen. We really hope you enjoyed this week's message. Please join us again sometime. And be sure to check out our exciting resources at newhopecom.org.